Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that your word does abide in us. No thanks to the foes who fear it. We thank you, O Lord, that you fight by our side with the weapons of the Spirit promised to us in our baptism and promised promise to us in the spoken and preached word. Were our foes to take our house, goods, honor, child, or spouse, though our life might be wrenched away, our foes cannot win the day. The kingdom is ours forever on account of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who won us the kingdom and righteousness on the cross. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask that your Holy Spirit be with us in the study of this word as we study Corinthians in the words of the Lord's Supper. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, first I'd like to start with a little continuum covering up some ends of what we were talking about before in John. For example, in I Am the Bread of Life, it turns out in studying the I Am statements uh, this past week, it's not widely agreed upon that the I Am statements in John are exclusively literal or exclusively figurative or, or even metaphors. It's more likely that it includes both literal meanings and metaphorical meanings. And that's the trouble we get into sometimes when we try to narrow down God's word to one meaning that, 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 fits, our, that fits our own narrative. And, and we make errors like I did. If every verse of the Bible only had one narrow meaning, then, well, gosh, there'd only be one sermon for every verse of the Bible. Uh, and that's certainly not true. There's so many... Uh, scripture is so intricately weaved that we cannot narrow it down because it, it, will, uh, it will mean different things at different times as the, as the Holy Spirit comes to us in Scripture. So it's not necessarily agreed upon both that is John 6 sacramental and it's not necessarily agreed upon that, um, that the I am statements are exclusively one or another. And, and I, don't, I really think it's not fair for us to limit God's word in such a fashion. But moving on, um, the Lord's Supper, we've talked about up until the Last Supper. Now we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper after the Last Supper, namely the sacrament at Corinth in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It is not only in Corinthians that we find the institution of the Lord's Supper for what Paul has received, so also he's telling us, um, it's not only what he received from a direct revelation of the Lord regarding those words, the words of institution that we use, but plenty more. Even earlier on, this is the chapter before the Lord's Supper. Um, he's talking a little bit about church. And, and I want to look at a few verses in Corinthians to first of all teach where we get the names. We have different names for the Lord's Supper. One of them is Holy Communion. And it actually comes from this first verse. Um, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? These are rhetorical questions, and it's got the implied yes. It demands a yes answer. Yes, it is a participation in the blood. 
Yes, it is a participation in the body. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we, all, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Um, but this word right here, this participation, we see it in other forms in the, in the New Testament. Most commonly is fellowship or community. And that's actually... The, the communio is actually a Latin translation of the actual Greek word of koinonia, participation, fellowship. This is the community together. And in fact, the Greek that the New Testament in written, is written in is called koine Greek, which is the common Greek, the, the Greek of the people, the koinonia Greek. So that's actually where we get the name Holy Communion. Now, there's a lot more in here when it comes to um, our practices of the celebration of the Lord's Supper that we're going to come back to at the end because it includes more verses than this. But I want to go through some of the other names, too. You notice when you come up to the rail, I say, Welcome to the Lord's Table. I don't know if that's something that had been done here or not or if it had been spoken of like that. But it is something directly out of Scripture. Just a few verses of, a few ver verses later, Paul is given a warning to those who are putting the sacrament second to their own desires. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So the Lord's table, another name for it. One, and of, of course, the name I, I think probably I most commonly use is the Lord's Supper. Um, this, this section of 1 Corinthians right here, the Lord's Supper begins on verse 23. The words of institution we covered in the first class. So this is right before it. He's going through some warnings. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each, go, each one goes ahead with his own meal for a normal eating. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here, although the sacrament was celebrated, because it, it, it does seem that they were attempting that, it had become a secondary thing. And we see in the following two verses where one goes hungry and uh, humiliating those who have nothing, there was no consideration for the poor and needy. Um, you can almost picture the way that the church, churches in Corinth may have been celebrating the Lord's Supper before this was that uh, only the rich and high in power come up to the Lord's table to eat first. And then maybe if there's anything left for anyone else. What other names do we have for the Lord's Supper? Eucharist. Um, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had Eucharisto, <laughs> after he had given thanks, after he had given thanks, there's one other I was thinking about this morning I missed, and that's the one that Luther uses in the small catechism. 
And that's actually, I'm going to go backwards one. Sacrament of the altar. Now, sacrament, the word sacrament is not a biblical word. You won't find it in the Bible. Sacrament is not related to sacrifices. Good to know. As we go further down the line, when we get into a, a little bit of the confessions, we'll talk about what sacrament, that word, actually means. But Luther called it the sacrament of the altar. I like that, too, especially because it connects the Old Testament sacrifices on the altar with the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which we participate in communion at the altar. So those are some names. Is there any other names that you guys have heard before? Is the Latin sacramentum a translation of the Greek word for mysteries in First Corinthians 4? I actually have that on, on here. Uh, stewards of the, well, mysteries is mysterion. Steward is the house lawgiver. I actually have that in a few slides, in about 10 slides or so. Um, sacrament, the word sacrament has a Latin base to it. It has to do with the sign and the race, the thing that it does. Um, yeah, it's actually a, a philosophical term. And Luther was actually a, a studying, studying philosophy, anti Um, so, whether it be what name you want to call it, whether it be communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, um, these are all scriptural names. We do not, we do not give, it our, give it our own name. I, I've seen other Lutheran churches give it, give it their own name. Um, celebrating the, celebrating the, the meal of St. Luke's or something like that. Um, taking basically the Lord out of And, of course, the very last verse. We did cover this in the first class. I want to make sure we talk about this again. This is just before our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed. Because I, I looked at comparisons to what else Paul had written about this receiving from the Lord, what I also delivered to you. Because there are a couple different ways that we can understand this in the tradition of Jewish times. Um, in the tradition of Jewish times, it was just an oral tradition. Fathers passed down to children, they passed down to their children, and they passed down to their children. The teachings of the Torah, the teachings of the prophets, the singing of the Psalms. This is, this is very different. And, and we find what, how Paul actually introduces in the beginning of Galatians. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it, not just, this is a little summarized from the Lord, and this breaks down what that was, um, through a revelation of Jesus Christ, a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Whether that was on the road to Damascus, or whether that was in other ways, um, it is, not, is not known to us, but we do know it was a direct revelation. Paul wrote letters under the direct inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And 
Quite frankly, that's good enough for me. Now, unworthy reception, now following the words of institution, this is, and this is directly rated because he starts off with that warning we already covered. Then he goes through the words of institution. Here's some more warnings. And we're going to break these down a little bit. These, these are important. Um, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. So we, it, it, it begs the question, well, what is unworthy? Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Okay, so to be worthy, I probably need to examine myself. Go further. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then we have the serious consequences of those days. This, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And we're going to look much more closely at these verses because these verses um, lead to what, the, what Lutherans confess as close or closed communion. And these verses also stand by the fact that closed communion is an act of love. It is not an act of, you're not part of our club. Or it's not an act of, you're not let in until we say so. It is an act of love because these are some very uh, strict words and warnings given to us here. So let's take a look a little bit closer. Um, continuing on after that, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. This judgment of unworthiness, not examining yourself, is what he's talking about. About the other things, and we'll talk about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So first, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So... First of all, let's think of what that unworthy manner, the result of which would be being guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is a sin against not only God's law, but against the very tangible body and the very tangible blood of our Lord. This is sinning against Christ. Where else do we find, well, from Paul, sinning against Christ? Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience with his weak, you sin against Christ. This is akin to kicking a man while he's down. Who in the past, in Scripture, has kicked a man while he's down? Pilate certainly kicked a man while he's down. Using, using the political advantage of crucifying Jesus Christ or handing him over to the Jews for the purpose of keeping them at bay, keeping the taxes rolling in, keeping government uh, uh, stable. 
How did Judas kick a man when he was down? That's kind of an obvious answer. Well, there's a financial advantage to this, to this guy who everybody hates already, sinning against Jesus Christ and telling him, telling the, the, uh, the location of Christ at Gethsemane. And of course, Jewish leaders, um, all in the same. Uh, he, here's our martyr. Here's our guy that we're going to kick while he's down to put this whole Christian thing settle it down and get back to our ways of living. This is sinning against your brothers and wounding consciences, kicking others when they're down. What else is sinning against Christ? What is it it equivalent to? In Hebrews, those that have fallen the way, to restore them again to repentance, since, and, and the author of Hebrews is speaking against these people, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Therefore, to sin against Christ is to crucify him again. We, uh, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, in his Pentecostal sermon, says to everybody in the crowd, you crucified Christ. Now, did everybody in the crowd physically crucify Christ? Well, no. But everybody, by sinning against Christ, are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's how serious this this Lord's Supper is to be taken. Um, We'll move on from that. Unworthy reception. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is uh, um, from Hebrews, of course. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, been tr- who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, sinning against Christ, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and by which also is outraged the spirit of grace, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we'll look at this falling weak and ill into death, too. So what, then, is unworthy? We know that unworthy reception is sinning against the body and blood of Christ. It's crucifying Christ. Let a person examine himself, basically, by discerning. To not examine yourself is to not deem yourself genuine after examination. But genuine what? Genuine what? And that's the key we'll get getting here to the end. And of course... Not discerning is without a worthy judgment. It's, it's without, a, without a firm decision. Um, other examining from Paul, as he defines examining, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. 
And this other, this other testing, it defines, it comes to it at the end, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work of bearing one another burdens. This is part of selflessness instead of selfishness. But further on the examining, let's study the, the weak and ill. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is not to be confused with spiritual weakness, spiritual sickness, or spiritual death. Um, th these words that Paul uses are very bodily, very physical. Um, weak is without, without a bodily strength. You're uh, bodily debili you're deb debilitized. Ill is physically sick. And it's actually a rare word that's only been used before in the New Testament on which those whom Jesus healed, physically sick, lepers, uh, fevers. And of course, this death, uh, this took some studying, but this is lying down as one buried. This is a physical death. Paul only uses that one, one other time prior to this. Uh, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but, her, but if her husband dies... She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So this is just to go to show this is not a spiritual death. This is actual physical death. That Some of them are weak and ill and some have died. Well, oh my gosh. Yeah. And we'll we'll take a look at uh, we'll take a look at a reading in Acts in just a little bit to con to uh, to help us understand the church at that time when people did when God did judge them with physical illness and physical sickness. Yeah. statement that God had that happen physically so that they wouldn't be condemned spiritually. This, I don't know what verse whether it's the next verse or two verses now. But, uh, oh, following this. I see. Yeah. 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 I, I, that's okay. I have a little on it, on it here too. So God's severe judgment on some of the Corinthians, it seems to have been a special case. The, the, the language tells us it was certainly a physical real death. Let's take a look at the book of Acts. That's what needs a Bible. Acts chapter 5. And we'll see actually, this was not a standalone occurrence. This is, of course, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the early church. If somebody would like to read verses 1 through 11.
But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. As he said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down in his feet and grieved her. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Thank you. Yeah, in the, in the early church, not only do we have these things happening, but they're also written down for our learning. Um, Paul is testifying to these deaths. Uh, and of course, Luke writing in Acts, um, God the Holy Spirit is writing these things down so that, so that we can learn. It does not mean that there's going to be similar consequences, but it's a warning written for us, the church of all ages, that the sacrament should not be taken lightly. Um, and the same thing of testing the Holy Spirit should not be taken lightly. To despise it, to despise the sacrament brings God judgment when we make it a secondary thing. Even though the judgment may not manifest itself in the same way or come so quickly. Uh, and this is, this is something that I, I had studied a bit in my last year because I was of the same I was of the same teaching. Is it spiritual? Is it not? But it, it is is a bodily, bodily real death that, that happened so that we may treat it with treat the Lord's Supper with, with reverence, with selflessness instead of selfishness. So some implications of this, and there there's a lot. First of all, the person who eats the Lord's body and the Lord's blood that is unworthy, still actually receives the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. Because somebody doesn't have faith in it does not mean that the body and blood aren't there. The power of the actuality, the real presence, is not in the one who receives. Um, it's also not in the one who distributes it. The unworthy who does not eat spiritually, nevertheless, eats the body and blood in Christ. The real presence is not maintained by the person. It's not negated by the person. It is based only on the power of God's word. That's one of the direct implications. The Lord's body and blood is what it is because of the power of the word. Now, 
as for the distributor of the Lord's Supper, Paul begins describing, this is in the beginning of Corinthians, when he's describing the work of the apostles and church leaders. Uh, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, this is, uh, I, I love this verse because of everything that's in it. We know that the Lord's Supper is one of the mysteries, but what is, what is a steward? What is a steward? And it's actually a house law. And a steward is a person that takes care of house law. Literally, the house law giver, the overseer of mysteries. So that is, that is uh, the position of a pastor. But we're also a servant of Christ. Nine times out of ten, when you see servant of Christ or slave to sin or slave to God anywhere in the New Testament, it's always the word doulos, slave. Here it is not. Here it is under oarsman. Kind of like uh, the leader of the ship. And the under oarsman is the one under the command of, under the direct command of. Row faster, row slower, turn left, turn right. The steward then, the steward's calling is to oversee the mysteries of the household of Christ while being subordinate to Christ by using his instruction manual. The power of the word. The power of the word is, is where it's at. All right, move on here. So worthy, I, I cannot reiterate the fact enough that Closed communion is, is an act of love. Um, we have a warning. We just don't know. We just don't know what kind of judgment can fall upon someone who does not eat and drink the body and blood of the Lord in a worthy manner. And we'll get to what that means for us in a little bit. So I want to make sure we have enough time for that. Yeah. Collectively, congregations will call upon the Lord to work through men, to call a steward of the mysteries, word and sacrament. Lo and behold, you got me, I guess, like it or not. The steward, I only must use the, the word of Christ, since I am his subordinate. So therefore, the, the question begs, can I judge who is worthy and who is not? Well, uh, let's, let's, all, let's first look at what we mean by to judge. 1 Corinthians, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation to the Lord. So, as a judge of who is worthy is not, I'm only able to, as far as humanly possible, but I cannot be the one who brings to light the, not, the things now hidden in darkness, nor can I know true purposes of the heart. I can only judge worthiness as far as humanly possible, being guided by Christ in his word. 
pastors have zero judgment when it comes to righteousness, whether it be final righteousness or current righteousness. I, I, I don't know what lies in your heart. I don't know what, what might be hidden in the darkness. And this is a, an important point I want to get to. You may have thought through this, well, am I worthy? Should I receive the body and blood? I don't know if I've examined myself properly. So I want to I take a grip on that very concern. That very concern, am I worthy? Are you concerned because you deem yourself not sorry for something you have done or for something you have not done? Or are you concerned because you deem yourself as a poor, miserable sinner unworthy for the very body and blood to be in your hands and in your mouth, then, my friends, that is who the sacrament is for. If your concern is because that body and blood of Christ is so much more holier than you and you're repentant in your sin, welcome to the Lord's table. Welcome to the Lord's table. It goes to the same thing. I think I mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. Uh, when you're concerned about the, the really bad sin against the Holy Spirit. You know, there's that one sin that's, that's uh, is there any sin that's unforgivable? Yeah, it's the one against the Holy Spirit. And you begin to worry, oh, I hope I didn't do that at some point. You begin to worry, did I do that? That very worry tells me that the word of God has reached into you and told you to worry. Therefore, welcome to the Lord's table. Welcome to the, you're a poor sinner. That very concern was given to you by the word of God. It bears upon your conscience because God has written it upon your heart. That's a miracle in itself, I think. Now for a softer tone. But if we judged, and this is still following the institution of the Lord's Supper, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul includes himself and us, and this is how we can tell the softer tone. He's including himself in the conversation, in the letter. Verse 31 is that worthy person. Person, We judge ourselves truly and by the truth that is made known to us in our ears and in our heart. We would not be judged because we'll be clothed in, clothed in righteousness. So do not despair of God's grace when we are disciplined, when we are pruned. We are pruned and being pruned hurts. But it's so that we may bear fruit. Discipline brings us to our senses and ultimately keeps us from being condemned with the unbelievers. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So this posture, this proper reverence, is the opposite 
of self-centeredness. Selflessness is the opposite of self-centeredness. There was no thought given to those who could not make it until later. Um, and that's the warning. That's why he's saying, wait for one another. Well, I'm sorry you're late to the party. You can't be let in. Not to our church. Clear distinction between a fellowship meal and the Lord's Supper. Um, which would be exactly, you know, that would be like celebrating the Lord's Supper just before having a meal in here. Or going and taking our plates over to, over to the, over to the uh, church to eat. Um, we have a clear distinction, and that distinction is important. Other things, the other things he's uh, referring to um, is likely something less important. At the end of Corinthians in chapter 16, he refers to the other things he'll discuss in person. But this was so important, um, not only the exhortation of the Lord's Supper in, in chapters 11, but also the exhortation of the resurrection in chapter 15. But other, of the other things can wait until in person. But these were so important. Being guided along by the Holy Spirit, he wanted to write them down. One last part here. <clears throat> Going back to 1 Corinthians 10, um, let, let's go ahead and open that up and read that. We have some time, right? Yeah, we have time. 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 14 through 22. Whoever would like to read. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right. Thank you. So we have a clear division here made by Paul. And what, is this, what does this imply for communion? Because he's talking about uh, the Lord's Supper and the practice of church. Christians cannot and must not participate in non-Christian worship services. That is the table of demons. Um, Non-Christians also must not participate in the celebrations in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So the realities of communion are not created or altered by the attitude 
or faith of those eating and drinking. The cup and the bread are, they are, just like is, they are the participation of the body and blood. And to speak exclusively of individuals communing um, can lead to misunderstanding. Are you as an individual communing? Well, yes. Uh, but let's remember the word communing in itself. It's a participation. It's participation of the fellowship. With all the angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name. With all of us at the same time. Any comments or questions? Well, that's, you had the verse up there, I think it was 32. But in terms of Yeah. Yeah, I think it kind of goes with the, it rains on the just and the unjust because even he, he's saying we, and this is Paul. Paul's a Christian. All of us disciplined. So it's a it's a self and. Oh, it says when. Yeah, oh, when we are judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Right, right. Yeah, we'd have to look at the wider context of it. Yeah, yeah. He definitely does change the change the tone because everything is you all, you all, you all. Now it's we, we, we. Um, all right, that's good. Anything else? Well, we have a few minutes, and I was going to save this if we did have a few minutes, so we do. <laughs> is John 6 sacramental? And this is something we looked at uh, uh, last week, and um, many disagree on it. So I just wanted to be fair and go through the people that are, you know, the fors and the against, the argument points in each direction. Uh, summary of yes, it is. The language is evidence to eat the flesh of Christ and to drink his blood. The actual language of it is that, that physicalness is there. Also, nothing in the story of manna, of feeding of the 5,000, prepares for the mention of drinking blood. In fact, drinking blood um, was forbidden because that comparison is, is made in John. Uh, those who ate manna in the desert. 
Only John mentions the Passover and the feeding of the 5,000 accounts. I thought that was, that was interesting. The, the 5,000, feeding of the 5,000 is in uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. I'm not sure if it's, yeah, Matthew, Mark, and John. But only John mentions the Passover um, directly, that that's when the feeding of the 5,000 took place. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 was also told as a Eucharistic banquet, the multiplication of the loaves, as a, and it, it's mentioned that it was a sign. Um, other arguments towards, yes, the gospel's written in view of what has already occurred in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. When these words were put to paper, this was already... Um, they had already been celebrating the Lord's Supper. The question itself seems not to have been contested until the time of the Reformation. Yeah? I have to disagree with that. The Gospel of John was written after those after Christ had been crucified. But Matthew, Luke, Matthew Mark, and Luke were, well, they, yeah, they were written for John, but not, yeah, still after Christ actually was crucified. So right. Yeah, I should have put it, yeah, the Gospel of John. That's what I meant. So, uh, just one suggestion. Mm -hmm. I did a little looking into it also. One of the conforms says there is a twofold eating of Christ's flesh. One is spiritual, which Christ describes especially in John 6 54. This eating, quote unquote, happens in no other way than with the spirit and faith in preaching and meditation on the gospel, as well as in the Lord's Supper. By itself, this is useful and helpful and necessary for all Christians at all times for salvation, the spiritual reason, not the oral reason. Without this spiritual participation in the sacramental or oral eating of the supper is not only not helpful, but is even harmful and damning in that, which is what we looked at in 1 Corinthians 11. Right, yeah. Now, this is, this is conjecture. Obviously, that can't be dogmatic. But since John wrote in 95, the gospel in 95, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been circulating now for 15, 20 years, uh -huh. people have been reading it. It's possible that John felt it unnecessary to be specific in, in details on the Eucharist, I mean, on the Lord's Supper, but that in John 6, he's talking about the spiritual eating. Right, because he's, yeah, I, John takes everything to the next level, so being the last gospel written. So you have to be careful in interpreting, I mean, applying John 6 to the Lord's Supper. You can't say that the, well, I, don't, I don't agree with the feeding of the 5,000 being, you know, Eucharistic or whatever. Right, right. But that's just my... And then, yeah, and that's what, that's what Luther said, too. That's what I, I, I was reading as you're seeing, because he says to eat... Luther claimed to eat is to believe. Um, his argument, when he does talk about this, because he, his, his, his push against the Catholic Church was justification through faith alone. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church, um, as I have it on the next page maybe? Oh, maybe, oh yeah. Well, Luther is doing so in opposition to Rome, Karma Cogitan, later it was Zingli, because... Rome was using John 6 for by the work worked, by the power of the, by the power invested in that priest. 
to transubstantiate. They would use that, and Luther was arguing against that. So Luther also did say it was, it, it was a faithful, it, it was a spiritual to believe eating. Um, yeah, and there's lots, and there's arguments the other way too, because Jesus said flesh in John instead of body. He didn't make any comparison to, uh, he uses, there's a different word instead of this is my body. And uh, eating and drinking metaphorical for faith. That, that's that's the, the people who say no as well. And that's why the, your last letter, John 6, 3, would imply there is no life outside the sacrament, so it cannot refer to the sacrament. Correct. I believe that can be true or it can be depending on how you are interpreting John 6. If, if John was only talking about spiritual eating, then it can apply to the sacrament. Right, right, yeah. And Ken or whoever wrote that part of the contour, said there are two types of eating in the Lord's Supper, spiritual and moral. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the thing, can it, does it have to be all yes or all no? I don't know. You know, can it be both? Is there benefits to both? Yeah. Anyway, good discussion. Good discussion. I just wanted to share the both sides of the both sides of that famous argument while we had it. We about to, huh? So are you saying we're not right or wrong if we're on one side or the other? I'm saying go to the Lord's Supper as a repentant sinner. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and ye shall receive forgiveness. Um, yeah, theology can go down rabbit hole sometimes. Yeah. Let's pray. Taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.